Hello and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Gomer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we are talking with Dr. Stephen Woodruff, one of our internal medicine physicians about the topic of UTIs in the inventory setting. Dr. Woodruff, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. So this is a, a broad topic. Um, you know, we have most of us who have treated patients on the ambulatory side have seen UTIs. We've seen them on the inpatient side, acute cystitis, and most of us feel fairly comfortable with the treatment of it. But it is the one of our most searched for uh, topics when we look on up to date. Um, and so we thought we we better you know bring in the expert on the topic and tell us you know what is it um, what are we looking for you know, who's at risk how do we go about diagnosing it and 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 treating it so let's just start with the basics what are we talking about when we're talking about uh, UTI well basically there there are two types are broken down into two basic types you have the simple cystitis and then you have the complicated urinary tract infections and of course in the ambulatory setting we see mostly simple cystitis and in the hospital it seems like more and more and more we see complicated urinary tract infections <clears throat> so there's a, de a definite down there basically uh, it's based upon um, symptoms and the severity of, of illness and presentation. So in simple cystitis, you may have a little dysuria uh, frequency um, manifested and uh, usually not um, high fever, whereas in complicated urinary tract infections, um, you'll have a fever. Typically, they'll say greater than 99.9. .9. Uh, flank pain, uh, maybe vertebral angle discomfort, um, um, they may be obtunded or may actually have altered mental status. It seems like that's what we see so much, particularly in the uh, advanced uh, uh, age population and in, and in the nursing home population. So there's a distinct, uh, distinct difference in the two in the way you treat them and the way you approach the, the uh, overall course of illness. I think that's very helpful. And maybe we can also distinguish between you know, cystitis, UTI, and um, you know, asymptomatic bacteria. So what do we mean when we talk about that? Right. Asymptomatic bacteria we see and probably is, is treated way too much. Um, the only time you really need to, to treat that is in the pregnant patient or in the renal transplant patient. Otherwise, uh, uh, you're just asking for trouble and will end up with more resistance uh, in those individuals if you keep treating it. There's just no end to it, particularly those people that have a chronic uh, Foley catheter uh, in place. So um, uh, beware treating asymptomatic. Yeah, and you know, we see you know, we see a lot of patients that have come in maybe for an annual physical or, or some other reason that get a urinalysis. They're not having any symptoms of 
dysuria or anything she described, and then they'll come back and have you know, some some bacteria in, in their urine and end up on an antibiotic. Um, I guess you know, to your point of you know, really only using it or treating it in, in pregnant people and in renal transplant, you know, I guess why why is it that we're we're getting those uh, urines on on people without symptoms and then treating it? Well, yes, that, that's a great question uh, because um, there's usually no end to that treatment. <laughs> uh, so uh, you may tell the, the patient to uh, drink more liquids, uh, uh, do some other things that might prevent them from having uh, a more significant infection at some point. But if they're symptomatic, uh, then uh, you would think about treating it. But asymptomatic uh, bacteria uh, really uh, classically should not should not be treated with antibiotics. That's very helpful. You know, in the emergency department, oftentimes there's a UA on that order set or the panel and the patient comes in with COPD or or chest pain. And then you you find that finding in the urinalysis and it's do you treat it? Do you not? So that's that's very helpful. Yeah, I think I think a lot of times it seems like what we see more and more of is the patient that comes to the emergency department with altered mental status and, and we're we're told to come to the ED because this patient has altered mental status and said, oh, by the way, they have pyuria. And, and so when you see white cells in the urine, you may see bacteria and pyuria. You may or may not see white cell cast, but then you, your first thought is, oh, my, this could be complicated UTI with potential uh, sepsis. And so you, you will admit that patient most assuredly and treat them with um, big gun antibiotics at first, you know, waiting to see what the culture is going to turn out. And a lot of times that culture is negative and then, and, and then uh, you need to, to really deescalate at that point and, and uh, say, okay, well, <laughs> probably not what it was. <clears throat> so let's go back to the outpatient setting. Um, which population is, is most at risk for cystitis that you see? Um, you know, who, which patients, what diseases do they have? What are their demographics that you look for when the patient comes in with the UTI? Well, in, in cystitis, often, uh, well, there's various groups. Um, you'll see um, a lot of times um, young females uh, early on that have just uh, started having intercourse and so forth. You may see it then, uh, so-called honeymoon cystitis. Uh, that we see. Um, more frequently in my practice in internal medicine, we see it more often in, in our diabetic population, uh, particularly people that have difficulties with emptying their bladder. Older patients that, that can't fully empty their bladder are, are higher risk uh, for cystitis and symptomatic cystitis and they have to be treated intermittently. Um, <clears throat> those Patients also may be at higher risk for for pyelonephritis, or we call a complicated UTI. So you really have to kind of keep an eye out on those. Anyone who's got a neurogenic bladder, uh, you have to look out for. Uh, people that have frequent kidney stones, um, you have to be aware of, of any sort of obstructive symptomatology that might, might uh, cause them to uh, have more frequent infections as well. 
So. So you have a patient that presents and you suspect cystitis. Walk us through your diagnostic approach and does it differ for simple versus complicated? Well, sure. <clears throat> um, simple cystitis, uh, a lot of times it's just their symptom complex to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm having a lot more frequency. I've got some dysuria. Maybe I've, maybe I've noticed a little hematuria, maybe or maybe not a little bladder tenderness, superpubic tenderness, um, usually not flank tenderness. If they have flank tenderness, if they have fever, um, then then if, they've got, if they're nauseated, then you think more, okay, this is more serious. This is probably pyelonephritis and not simple cystitis. That patient may or may not need to be hospitalized depending on who they are and what their comorbidities seem to be at that particular time. So you stop, you do a urinalysis, do a urine culture, the thing I see so much, particularly in urgent care, is people get a urinalysis, but they don't do a culture. They put them on antibiotics, and then we never know, did they really have a true infection? <laughs> maybe they had some bacteria, or maybe maybe they did, but you don't know what particular um, organism was was the cause. And so you may or may not have a situation that you can follow up on in an outpatient clinic after they've been to urgent care. And it's really helpful. And you said early on that, you know, just even symptoms alone without the urinalysis would, would probably be enough in the right patient. I was reviewing this article from the Annals of Internal Medicine um, that said a negative UA in a patient with classic symptoms does not rule out cystitis. So if you have a patient that comes in with all the right symptoms and you get a negative UA, you should probably still treat them as if they have a urinary tract infection. So I thought that was interesting and not something I'd symptomatic. Uh, yeah, seen, the other but, yeah. thing to look out for is you can have a negative UA if they have an obstruction. So so a negative, uh, they can be pretty sick and, and they have no pyuria, no white cell cast, no, you can't see bacteria, but but maybe they're obstructed and infection, it's a high infection, or it could even be a paranephric abscess or, uh, or something more, more severe in that situation. So you have to really pay attention to the physical exam and the symptom complex. All right, so we, we had the patient, uh, they came in, it looks like, you know, they have cystitis. We can talk about it, whether it's uh, acute or, or complicated. Uh, but then walk us through the decision process on how to treat. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, you, you need to know what are their comorbidities, what what's their history. Have they had a lot of urinary tract infections in the past? That's extremely important. Have they been treated previously? Um, what's the frequency of um, uh, ESBL? Uh, e. coli in your in your uh, hospital setting or in your region uh, to know uh, how you might treat that individual. Uh, what other drugs are they on uh, at the time? All those th thoughts go through your mind as you start to decide uh, how am I going to treat this person. Uh, you look at the urine and if it's nitrite positive. Uh, then you, you think, okay, this is probably a gram-negative bacteria. Um, and, and so you think uh, this is probably going to be E. coli or maybe another one of the uh, 
family with Klebsiella or Proteus uh, in that in that category. If they've been instrumented somehow, some way, maybe they maybe they had a, a, a biopsy of some sort for some reason, then, then you may think, oh, this could be uh, a more a more serious infection or um if they have um uh, if they have diabetes it might it be more likely to have pseudomonas so so all those things kind of enter your mind as you start to think about how how am i going to treat it we went through this phase where, where we were using um cipro and levaquin uh uh, so, so very much that now we've created uh, this uh, ESBL um, resistance and in certain populations, in fact, there's a subtype called ST131 E. coli that in the VA setting is about 30% resistant to fluoroquinolones. And it seems like here lately we've seen a lot more resistance to fluoroquinolone um, uh, therapy with uh, outpatient cystitis or pyelonephritis. So um, we we've been using a lot more of the older drugs. Uh, I think as as uh, we've been using more Bactrim and uh, uh, if it's Enterococcus, been using more um, of, the, of the penicillins uh, in that setting or cephalosporins. Um, uh, if if we don't think it's a gram negative bacteria. So that's a long way around, but sure. all of those things, you know, go through your mind uh, when you're dealing with those patients. And the key is, I think, knowing your patient and getting a, a really good history of, about their situation. And we really haven't talked about prostatitis yet too. And that's another, th another issue in men. You always have to think, is this prostatitis? And in females, um, sometimes you have to think about, is it pelvic inflammatory? disease. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. I wanted to make sure we touched on what else could it be? What's in the differential, you know, you know, STIs, things of that nature that you got to look out for as well. That's right. Well, before we, before we sh switch gears, tell me how you think through indications for hospitalization. When do you admit the patient or when can you treat the patient outpatient? Uh, right. I, I base it pr primarily on uh, comorbidities and and uh, my physical exam and the symptoms that they're having. If they're really febrile, if they're having nausea and vomiting, let's say lots of discomfort and pain. Uh, if they're if they're diabetic, especially insulin dependent diabetics, or if I think there's there's possibility that there's obstruction. If I get this. This uh, urinary, this uh, colicky pain that keeps coming. I think there may be a stone involved. I will definitely admit those patients. And uh, in in um, in my practice in general internal medicine, um, you know, 75% of my population is over 65. So so uh, uh, I'm very easy to admit those people when they're when they're sick like that. Uh, um, and at least for a day or two till I get things under control, till I kind of know which direction I'm going. <clears throat> so is there a need for a... It's based on symptoms and based on, on your physical exam. And, you know, if they've got a high white cell count as well, I'll, I'll put them in the hospital. Okay. And is there any need for a follow-up for analysis for any individuals? 
Yeah. Now, you know, if if someone um, I, I think after you are you talking about cystitis or 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 after either one? Yeah, I think you want to know uh, later on, particularly if you treat outpatient, you want to know, did I, did, I, did I clear it up or is there something that I'm not getting to that keeps seeding this person uh, or, or did they really have resistance uh, and I didn't really catch it? If they've had a significant infection, yes, I think a follow-up is worth, worth doing with a culture. Yeah, a lot of if they fail treatment or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, what about any, you know, the the numbing agents that are out there? Peridium, do you typically use them to to help with the the symptoms? Yes, I, I will use it for symptoms if they're having lots of dysuria. I think it's helpful in those individuals. Usually, just two or three days on those uh, will suffice. You don't have to take it usually. Uh, seven to ten days of, of peridium or or those antispasmodic agents. And then we, we started talking about it a little bit uh, with maybe treatment failures, what you would do, you know, if the patient did send you a message later, um, hey, I'm still having symptoms, uh, what do you do next? And then I also want to talk about uh, prevention. Yeah, I think, I think you start thinking about imaging uh, uh, of those individuals, uh, Jake, you, you would definitely, uh, uh, if if in a couple of days, let's say in the hospital, a day or two in the hospital, and you're not making any headway, you need to you need to do a CT uh, scan without contrast, and uh, and be sure there's not some sort of mechanical obstruction somewhere that's or a, a paranephric abscess or central medullary uh, abscess or something crazy like emphysematous pyelonephritis or granulomatous pyelonephritis or some of those unusual uh, conditions that you might run into um, uh, in those in those circumstances. Um, um, and uh, if so, then you need to have uh, urology, you know, with on board as well uh, with you to kind of look and see what needs to be done. Um, and, and what about on the outpatient side? Suppose you have a patient that just keeps having recurrent UTIs. Uh, they do clear when you treat them, um, but they keep coming back. How do you advise those patients? Well, I'll do uh, I'll do imaging, and uh, like I said a minute ago, do a CT CT scan. Usually, I will refer them to urology and have them do some some uh, studies. To, to see if there are some dynamic studies to see what's going on, if they have uh, trouble with emptying the bladder uh, in particular, or if they have uh, uh, any sort of mechanical issues that need to be looked at, or if they need medications, for, for example, to help them be able to empty the bladder better. Are there any strategies for prevention? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I tell the I tell the young girls, um, uh, sure, and, and urinate after after intercourse to, to not wear your tight jeans and drink drink water and not Dr Pepper. <laughs> That's what I tell them. Yeah. Usually, when I tell older women that, they get a kick out of that when I tell them that. And um, uh, um, I drink drink water. Um, 
I, I tell them that uh, you're less likely to have an infection in a river than a pond. And <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> to empty, empty your bladder frequently. Um, uh, and, and if you get the urge to go, go. Um, I'm, not, I'm not big on chronic macrodantin therapy. It's been used a lot in the past. And uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, some of the urologists uh, will go to that sometimes, but in internal medicine, we try to stay away from, try to stay away from that. There's too much resistance. It doesn't work very well. They have breakthrough infections and we see, um, uh, you can see pulmonary fibrosis later on. All of us have been practiced long enough have seen that um, happen now in Men that have recurrent prostatitis, they may have to be on some antibiotics for a longer period of time to get through that if they have recurrent infections that way. Um, you know, we used to, a long time ago, we would give vitamin C uh, and and uh, ascorbic acid may make the urine more, more acidic, uh, which may uh, make it a little less likely to have uh, infections. Or we would, we would give, uh, in the past, um, uh, just just have them take cranberry tablets. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask about. We hadn't mentioned cranberry juice. Is that is that still in vogue? I used to do the tablets because the juice has so much sugar in it. Uh, yeah, it's not going to be good for your diabetic patients. I have I have a cousin that works for Ocean Spray, you know, in New Jersey. I'm supposed to say cranberry juice, but yeah. <laughs> that's right. You didn't disclose your conflicts of interest on the program. <laughs> yeah. What about, um, you know, I've heard recently, you know, vaginal estrogen for your postmenopausal women, especially, is that something you typically recommend? I do. I do and, and the gynecologists really do that uh, a lot because uh, a lot of times, you know, I, I, I tell the women it's like having chapped lips, uh, you know, and, and so it, it, you know, the skin cracks and you're, you're more likely to get uh, skin bacteria uh, uh, into the introitus and consequently infection. So, so I think, I think it works and, uh, we usually will recommend that if they have a lot of atrophic vaginitis. <clears throat> Great. Okay. We mentioned other things like prostatitis and, um, STIs. What other, um, differential diagnosis should we have on our radar? Um, for um, so just, patients that come in with dysuria, yeah, just with dysuria. <clears throat> well, I, yeah, I, I think uh, I think you've got to you've got to always be thinking about uh, stones and uh, stone disease, and, and it can be really really serious at times. In fact, we had a patient uh, here lately that just had a three millimeter stone, but he was septic. And you would think well, you should pass a three millimeter stone. And he had he had dysuria, but he really didn't have pyuria and he didn't have white cells, but he had some red cells. So he had a stone. But then shortly thereafter, he had fever to 103. He, had, he was septic. And uh, so he had had to relieve the obstruction, even though he had just a, a, a rather small stone, because you usually will say after five to six uh, millimeter below that, that it could usually pass one of those, but uh, 
uh, you have to really, really, really watch out uh, for that. Um, uh, and I'm just trying to thank other other things for Dejuria. Um not a whole not a whole lot uh, otherwise that you have to think about. Um, I think uh, antibiotic choice is really uh, uh, something that that I think people have to look up a lot, <clears throat> and it's changed a lot since I've been in practice mm-hmm. for years. Um, and and so I think uh, the differential that Amanda mentioned a minute ago is who comes in the hospital, who goes home. Some people recommend giving uh, like in the ER, just one dose of rocephin, and then if there's no contraindication to give them a fluoroquinolone, if you do not have much ESBL, that's probably okay. And to do that, you know, give them that outpatient treatment for seven, seven to 10 days, even if you think they've got a complicated UTI. If you have no risk factors for infection uh, with multidrug resistance, then, then that usually works. Unless they're septic, if they're septic, then you need to use a, a, a carbapenem um, or meropenem, and then right off initially probably vancomycin. Um, we don't see too much sepsis with VRE, thankfully, so we don't usually have to think about daptomycin or or uh, uh, linolazid. We don't have to use that too much. Um, until you get your cultures and you, you know, I tell the residents we shoot with a cannon and then we shoot with a rifle. Uh, is, is how we, is how we do this. Um, then you've got, uh, patients, um, who have, uh, one risk factor, uh, with multi drug resistance. And those people, again, a lot of times they'll use rocephin, uh, and, uh, and or zosin. Uh, as your first line of therapy until you get your culture and then you can decide if you can if you can de-escalate to an oral antibiotic for seven to ten days. Um, otherwise in in patients uh, if, if you do have resistance you have quite a bit of resistance around um, another regimen is to use like um, ertapenem or zosin and then um, depending on the on the on the culture and sensitivity, then you may have to keep giving them the ertapenem for a total of uh, a week or so. And these are mostly I'm talking about not just cystitis, but complicated UTIs. So much more has happened with uh, the fluoroquinolones, and we're so aware of like QT intervals and things like that. And and so many people are now on cardiac medications. uh, So you have to be aware of that. And of course, now we also talk about the um, potential um, neurological uh, complications of fluoroquinolones and uh, uh, even I've even had hepatitis uh, on fluoroquinolones. So you, you have to be aware, be aware of that and uh, uh, those individuals. Sometimes you really get into a corner because you have patients that have multi-drug uh, sensitivities or allergies. And uh, there are unusual antibiotics like fosamycin, which nobody's ever seen before, hardly. Um, yeah, we had an ID doc at, at UAB that was just talking about how you know it was you couldn't find it anywhere, but it would it's perfect for this. Uh, and would, his slogan was free fosamycin. That's what he wanted. He wanted everybody to use that drug, but it was just you couldn't find it. Yeah. Um, 
you really can't find it perennially. You can find oral as a yeah. one dose, uh, but we rarely end up giving that um, um, uh, particular medicine. There are some new uh, aminoglycosides that are on the horizon and some new uh, carbapenems that are that are coming. But the other reason to not treat the asymptomatic so much is because we this is an area where we drive resistance uh, probably more than anything else um, in treating uh, uh, cystitis and urinary tract infections, probably a lot more than, than we should. mentioned it, but I don't remember. Did you, did you mention macrobid in the outpatient setting? Is that something still typically used? Uh, I think it may have a place if your culture is shows sensitivity in simple cystitis. I would not use macrobid in complicated UTIs in pilots. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk to me about duration of treatment. Oh yeah, that's great, great topic. You know, you too. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm an old doctor, Amanda. Ten so, days, right? So, yeah, Ten to fourteen. You know, in, <laughs> you know, uh, um, <laughs> no, um, you know. Uh, and and for cystitis, three days usually uh, is is sufficient for cystitis. Uh, for complicated UTI in an otherwise uh, healthy individual, oral regimens five to seven days is a recommendation now. For complicated UTI with sepsis or the really sick patient in the hospital, probably seven to ten days in those individuals. We have we used to always be fourteen. <laughs> 14 days in the hospital. Um, now, if you got a perinephric abscess, or if you got, you know, that sort of thing, you may you may extend your your treatment period a little bit longer until you you uh, uh, take care of that situation. Um, it's always a problem too. We didn't talk about this very much about the patient who who has a chronic a chronic Foley catheter in place mm-hmm. or. Um, uh, the, the patient who who has um, um, nephrostomy tubes, or another patient has had a, a, a cystectomy and they have an ileal conduit, and uh, almost almost always, if you go looking, you'll find infection in those in those people, and so you have to really just pay attention to to the patient, the symptoms your whole clinical setting as to whether or not you're going to treat. Um, uh, and, and usually we have a pretty good discussion, especially with our residents about do we or do we not treat at this point? <laughs> and especially, with, if the, especially if the patient is you know, maybe nonverbal or not able to. That's right. That's right. Symptoms. That's right. Well, Dr. Woodruff, uh, I've definitely learned a lot. Are there any other points that you want to make sure the medical staff uh, takes home before we end? Uh, I can't think of any right now. Uh, I think it'll change. You know, what I've said 10 years from now will be a little different. Probably probably two, three years will be different because, like I said, the the incidence of uh, resistance and uh, uh, new antibiotics that are coming uh, will change. Uh, we never would have thought about shortening the duration of treatment back when I trained, but uh, I'm glad medicine, you know, in medicine, I tell the residents all the time, you learn and then you unlearn and then you learn again. 
And if you keep doing that all the time in medicine, you'll, you'll do well. <clears throat> That's a really good right point. Thanks again. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit. <laughs>